Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Mel. And I'm Janine. It's the month of May, and we are continuing our celebration of APAN with more conversations that explore the Asian American experience. This month, we're working with Old Navy on a campaign to celebrate our AAPI heritage and reclaim what it means to be American in 2022. We are so pleased to be partnering with them on this very important conversation, so thank you, Old Navy, for sponsoring this episode. In our last episode, the three of us talked about our relationships with our Asian American identity. Today, as we often do on this podcast, we have invited a guest to offer a different perspective on this topic. She is the Senior Creative Director, Head of Voice at Old Navy, a brand often associated with traditional Americana when we were teenagers. I don't know if anyone else remembers those Old Navy 4th of July t-shirts, but they were pretty iconic and widely worn when we were young. Janine also happens to be an Asian American woman. As head of voice, she's created award-winning marketing campaigns for the brand, including the Size Inclusive Bought Equality campaign last year. Before Old Navy, she has written and edited for Vogue, W Magazine, Refinery29, and Opening Ceremony. She also has a master's in journalism from Columbia University and has written numerous culture features and op-eds. In our personal conversations, she has shared her passion for the Asian American identity, thinking through questions like, what does it mean to be Asian? And what does it mean to be American? We shared some of our own perspectives on this topic in the last episode, and now we get to hear from Janine. Please welcome to the Asian Boss Girl podcast, Janine Celeste Peng. Hi, Janine. <laughs> welcome. Hi. Hi. So great to be here. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. You know, the three of us uh, really enjoyed our individual conversations with you. So I think today we want to learn more about, you know, who Janine is. So can you share with our listeners, you know, where did you grow up? You know, how was your family dynamic like? And what was young Janine like? Yeah, I'm so excited to be here with you as well. Um, I grew up in Fremont, California. So Fremont is sort of right on the lip of Silicon Valley. And I see Melody like looking at me with these shocked eyes. (laughs) Do you know Fremont? I grew up in Union City, so we're actually neighbors. Oh, there you go. Right. Okay, so you get it. It was sort of um, sleepy then. It's a little bit sleepy now. Um, Fremont's claim to fame is that we're the home to Christy Yamaguchi's family, mm-hmm. to MC Hammer. Uh, we're also home to writers like Khaled Hosseini, who is the Afghan-American novelist of The Kite Runner, Um, Wajahat Ali, who's a brilliant New York Times op-ed writer, he just wrote his memoir, Go Back to Where You Came From, about actually growing up in Fremont and his experience um, as a Muslim in a Pakistani community. So I would say Fremont is super diverse. Um, I didn't know that there was anything other than diverse. Um, the culture for our schools is super academically focused. Um, but my best friends growing up um, are and still remain children of immigrants, right? So like best friends from Iran, from Palestine, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and of course, like a lot of East Asians. Um, so really, I feel kind of privileged to have grown up experiencing this cultural richness Um, going to friends' houses, eating with their families, watching their movies, um, seeing what their parents are watching on TV. Mm -hmm. A lot of news wasn't necessarily like the mainstream news and media. felt like I got a taste and appreciation for subcultures really early on in my life. 
Wow. It sounds like such an enriching childhood experience. And it definitely, you know, I mean, we often talk about on this podcast how the three of us are all East Asian, even though we represent very different perspectives. But um, we definitely have a desire and um, and a listenership of people that come from all different um, Asian backgrounds. So knowing that you were exposed to this broad spectrum of all the different subcultures, when you reflect back on your childhood, what did it mean to be Asian American when you were growing up? And has that changed for you now? Um, I am a first-generation ABC. My dad comes from a poor family, originally from China and then Macau. He's actually the first in his family to be educated. My mom had a more comfortable upbringing. Her parents were both in academics, also originally from China, but then grew up in Taiwan during the Cultural Revolution. They both came to the U.S. on student visas in the early 70s when there were more people coming from Taiwan and Hong Kong and seeking social mobility. Um, They ended up eventually meeting in Berkeley. It's kind of a crazy story about how they met, which is probably better told over drinks. And honestly, it is hard for me to describe the dynamics of growing up in the household as anything other than well-intentioned but quite passionate and at times mercurial. They ended up separating when I was 12 and my sister was 16, which was super tough on us. But I'm thankful we received a lot of stability from my mom's side of the family, who were also all in a Fremont at the time, starting from my gongong popoa, my grandparents, to my aunts and uncles, to my incredible cousins. We all grew up within biking distance of one another, and they were definitely my sanctuary at times. Um, thinking about that and then thinking about what it means to grow up as an Asian American, it's a hard thing for me to articulate especially because back then there was no vocabulary for it. So it just became this very visceral experience. It's also hard to detangle what was culturally significant for me and what might have just been individual family quirks, right? What I would say is that a lot of my childhood felt like I was watching other people's lives, but often from the sidelines, and that I knew I also had this secret family life. You know, I I write and talk about code switching a lot, sort of there is the Asian side um, where I'd literally go home and I would speak Mandarin. There was like a jar of dimes that my mom (laughs) had implemented, right? Anytime that I wasn't speaking Mandarin at home, you'd like have to toss a dime into this jar. Mm. And I would go to Chinese school on the weekends, on Saturday mornings, um, we were a pretty religious family growing up, so there was also the Chinese community um, within the church. And then at the same time, like all of those things were um, not necessarily celebrated when I would be in school or sort of absorb mainstream culture on TV. So I think there was sort of a toggling and I kind of learned how to navigate myself in different settings and different situations depending on who was in the room. Is that something you feel like you kind of do now too, Janine? I think it's sort of an innate habit that I picked up early on. I think that based Mm -hmm. on my family dynamics, I learned how to read the room really early on. Mm -hmm. I learned how to be incredibly perceptive around people's emotions Um, And so that was something that I kind of adopted early on. And then now, because I play in the world of tonality and a voice, I also pick up on even like small things, communication styles, right? References that Mm -hmm. you use. Um, Are you using millennial speak or is it more classic English standards, right? Even like the accents that people are using, it's all a way to signal. Mm -hmm. And so I think almost unconsciously I'm sort of picking up on all of those and then kind of collating that to say like what can I do in this room to have the most influence or what can I do in this room to make people the most comfortable but I I think now it's like so ingrained Mm -hmm. and also I mean I'm gonna jump light years ahead I think now because I lead the voice for a company 
I have like a duty to make sure that it's the multiplicity of voices that are coming through, right? I feel like I have like this Mm -hmm. calling to say it's not just one voice. It's the community of voices that makes something great. Yeah. Now that's that's actually really incredible how this ability to kind of – pick up on like reading on these little signals from like a young age with your family dynamic to now leading, you know, being head of voice at Old Navy. It's really incredible. You know, um, today, you know, you are the senior creative director at Old Navy. What was it like for you going to a more creative profession, you know, with expectations from a super strict parents? You know, I have a lot of friends that grew up in Fremont. Mm-hmm. I understand the community dynamic there. My cousins actually are still in Fremont. Mm-hmm. I will say like the general consensus, there's like a, you know, an expectation to go into a certain, you know, career profession. And, you know, how did young Janine navigate that journey? I kind of toggled, I would say, like in kindergarten, um, I remember my mom remarking like your kindergarten teacher said that you're always in your own head like Janine's always a dreamer and then just one year later in first grade the notes were Janine's a social butterfly she actually needs to like learn how to have more self-control in terms of like when she's talking and when she's not right so I feel like I toggle back and forth between being an introvert and an extrovert Mm. um I still sort of do that you know like there are times when I'm totally in my own head I'm I'm just creating visions and dreams in my own head. And then there are other times when Mm -hmm. um, I love connecting socially with other people. I think one thing I'm really curious about now that I know you're from Fremont and maybe this is me like, oh my God, I feel like I know you a bit more, (laughs) is that I think it's actually really rare that people from like a suburban town like Fremont or even like Union City where I'm from, it's, it's really rare that they step into creative like I don't I think in that city there's not that much access to a lot of like opportunities versus like maybe like our friends or peers that grew up in like New York City or like in the city of Los Angeles where it mm-hmm. feels very close by how did you even get into the creative world then like coming from Fremont like did you mm. intentionally choose like Columbia as your undergrad or like I guess like how did you get into the creative space Mm. Yeah, well, I'll say um, undergrad was Berkeley, and then Columbia was my master's. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I've always been more creatively inclined. Mm. So I remember early on really, like, diving into stories. I don't know. There's this Alameda – I think it's called, like, the Alameda County Library or Mm. something. That was – the place to go it opened up when i was a child and it was like so sleek it was like the library to go to um you know my parents would just sort of like drop me off there after school and i was such a voracious reader and i loved i loved understanding where other people were right so um everything from sweet valley high to the babysitters club to like all of the judy bloom books all of the Roald Dahl books. I mean, Beverly clearly mm. was my jam. I felt like I was Ramona Quimby with the Bad Bangs. Um, I kind of like started to like dive into other people's worlds. And then I think I just kind of like started to pick up on, okay, like I love this, I love this narrative. I love this author. I love their tonality. I'm going to start creating little poems or songs or stories riffing off of um, riffing off of their their inspiration, right? Their tones. Um, I remember recreating the poem "Sick" by Shel Silverstein, mm. which like has a really really strong rhythm. My mom was a Kuman instructor, and I remember like doing that while I was sort of like in the Kuman room, you mm. know, just like sort of killing time. And I remember like presenting that riff to my mom and she thought I was a genius because she thought I like pulled it out of nowhere honestly my mom she has a huge background in writing and journalism and she's someone like early on I noticed was like a really natural raconteur she would regale me with all of these incredible stories about growing up in Taiwan about the love interest Mm. that she had um, beyond my dad about being young and curious here in America and we'd really we'd stay up late you know mm-hmm. and we'd talk about these things and it was so meaningful um I just knew that I wanted to get into storytelling I knew that that was so interesting to me and there was so much to uncover there I also loved magazines like Sassy and YM 
catalogs like Delia's. I remember saving up six weeks of allowance to get those sparkly blue barrettes from Delia's, which cost me $12, um, a huge chunk of change at that time. And then I also really loved the transaction of selling things. I've actually always loved it. I remember when I was super, super young, I set up a little mini mart makeshift station outside of my bedroom and this mini mart was open 24 hours. I would sell random crap like old trinkets, half used erasers, broken gumball machines, and then I would have a little sign um, that said, you know, this store is open 24 hours and there was a little pouch where my parents or my sister could put in money even if I was sleeping and and purchase something. And then I kind of parlayed that when I was 13 to 14 to actual auction sites like Amazon and eBay. I would send, you know, random Roxy lots to people across the country. I feel like for me, I was always really fascinated with connectivity and a life beyond the suburbs and what could happen if you kind of melded both of those together. Yeah. I love that picture you yeah. just painted. It was amazing. Yes, Alameda County Library. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> I also, I, I think we totally go on tangents. Like, I really want to hear these stories that your mom told about, like, the previous lovers from your dad. Like, that just sounds so much fun. And I could see how you've just been so, you know, like, enchanted by the stories and how that inspired you to, like, you know, to where you are today. Um, I do want to switch over to talk about your career because I think that's just such a also a very you probably have a very good perspective on this but you know as someone who is you know a director level and now head of voice at Old Navy like through your experience as an Asian American woman you know was there a time where you were ever confronted with the stereotype or biases or maybe a moment when you were like the only one in the room and had to decide whether to speak up smile and nod especially as someone that you know can pick up on these signals but I think in terms of like being the only one in the room I think that's a really great question I would just say I have definitely been the only one in the room and it's been awkward Mm. and it makes you doubt whether or not the things that were said were actually microaggressions or were they just flippant remarks where someone wasn't really paying attention and what's the difference between that. So for me, I think it's been really important that I'm finding my allies and that I'm not in the room where I'm the only one. Because then you have someone that has a mutual understanding. Then you feel like you have psychological safety, right? So um, I find that so interesting. But of course, like microaggressions happen all the time and you just, you don't really know. There's never a a black and white in terms of um, if someone said that because you're Asian, if someone said that because you're a woman, if someone said that because you're both, if someone was just sort of not really thinking through what they were saying, it's, it's so hard to understand that. Mm. Not only is it hard to understand, trying to explain why something is offensive or off color to a clueless person or someone who just doesn't get it, it can feel so mentally draining and heartbreaking. Kathy Park Hong talks about it as sort of taking all of your powers of persuasion because it no longer becomes just a chat about race. It's ontological. It's like explaining to a person why you exist or why you feel pain or why your reality is distinct from their reality. So this was in 2011. Gossip Girl was in season four. Mm -hmm. And they approached W Magazine, where I was the assistant to the editor-in-chief at the time, to work on this like really exciting four-episode narrative arc. Um, super excited. Obviously, you know, Gossip Girl was in its heyday. Blair and Dan would play interns mm-hmm. to this assistant. Um, and so one of my responsibilities was editing the scripts for accuracy. And for me, going through the rounds and rounds, I was really focused on creating something that was like an anti-Emily from the Devil Wars Prada. Mm. Didn't want this person to feel like such a caricature and literally like such a bitch. I wanted this person to feel like there was some empathy, but that she was also formidable, right? So felt pretty good around where we ended up with that. So nice nuanced place in terms of character development. 
the first day on the set, you know, the actors were there. There were so many people. It was actually in our W offices. It was like 7 o'clock in the morning, and I was meeting everyone, shaking hands, and then I met, in bear, like in big air quotes, I met me, right? She was five foot ten. She was blonde. She was blue-eyed. She was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and she stuck out her hand, and she says, Hi, it's great to meet you. I guess I'm you. And her name in the episodes was Upperly Lawrence, right? So I actually, it's so interesting because at that time, this is 10 years ago, I processed it as much to say like, okay, like I guess the person that's going to play me on the CW is going to be a blonde woman and her name is going to be Upperly Lawrence. I was still so excited about Mm -hmm. that, but when I when I thought about it further, it was like, you know, there is such a stereotype of who gets that kind of job, right? Would it not be some bright young Asian thing that would get that job? You know, I'll never forget that exchange, but of course you're in this job that a million girls would die for. So I didn't say anything at the time, but um, later later in the time that we were working with Gossip Girl, I had the chance to bring on guest appearances and unconsciously i i suggested two asians mm-hmm. it was sort of like an unconscious offset to what had happened with my character yeah mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that story janine i think that's a really good example of what you're saying where oftentimes um being faced with uh with this challenges of our ethnicity and or our gender is not as direct or if you are the only person in the room it can be too easy to question yourself um so i really liked the solution that you provided for our listeners who anyone who no matter what their community their workplace their school setting can apply this which is to find allies or to have conversations with other people to confirm you know that so that you can feel you can feel supported and safe in being able to decipher how a situation goes you know given that specific example of the general type of person who kind of gets the jobs that you have been you know working how do you think your specific identity as an asian woman has influenced um your craft and your creation as a writer as a journalist and now as you know a creative director role I would say a lot of my drive and passion comes from probably being both an Asian mm. and a woman. I don't think I can really decouple that. Um, I'd say I have a really iron constitution dealing with, um, you know, a lot of discipline in my life, growing up with a lot of tough love. I'm okay with the idea of. Uh, ideas Mm. being rejected Mm. I will happily come up with another one that's just as great if not better I'm I'm really welcoming of harsher feedback because I feel like that will only create a better outcome and that'll only create a better me um you know I think it's really interesting uh I just finished the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. I think grit is something that I really learned mm. growing up as an Asian woman. Um, the determination, and I know everyone says this, but the hard work, right? Like we sometimes internalize everything and the expectations of the generations before. It's what um, the comedian Jenny Yang famously calls the mm. rep sweats. Mm. Like, you want to be able to rep for your community, right? Mm-hmm. You want to do a good job because it's not just you. You're opening the door for other people. Like I've learned that I'm not going to expect mm-hmm. anything. Like, nothing was handed, right, to me. Um, I had to kind of work hard against the grain to get to where I was. For instance, my first job, like, I was all about cold calling, mm-hmm. I faxed my resume, I emailed people, I was kind of fearless in that way. And I'd also throw in that idea that I was like really young. So I also feel like that fearlessness came from there aren't that many repercussions, right? Mm -hmm. Go and try to go against the grain, do something different. Um, And then I think this idea of grit and determination and hard work 
um, those were sort of built in from the start, right? So I had those tools already to work with. I kind of just like pulled ahead from there. I love that. Mm -hmm. Iron constitution. I think that is a very good point that a lot of what you identify with as as an Asian person and as a woman um, really does give you a lot of the great uh, traits and characteristics to do well in a creative in creative work or in craft. Yeah. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Hi everyone. Some of you might remember that last year, we partnered with Comcast Rise on a virtual event about small businesses hard hit by the economic impact of the pandemic. Comcast Rise has already helped nearly 8,000 small businesses with free, yes, free, services such as marketing consultations, media and creative production, and technology upgrades. And yours could be next. As a small business ourselves, we love seeing resources that support the continuation and growth of companies like ours. Please take advantage of this amazing opportunity. It's a short application, but can positively impact your small business. They are now accepting applications from POC-owned or women-owned small businesses. We encourage you to check them out. Learn more and apply at www.comcastrise.com apply. And make sure to share with a business owner friend. I feel like you worked so many different jobs and have worked for different companies. Like through your experience, what do you think is the hardest part about being an Asian woman in the workforce? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's also like these questions are amazing. I love your questions. They're also so hard to unpack, right? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes like the hardest thing about being an Asian in the workforce is also sometimes like the hardest thing about being Asian in this country Mm. um there's like a i work in corporate america i've worked in many um many different environments that have been mini microcosms of this country the hardest part is wondering what is my impact and what's my influence i also just finished reading jay caspian kang's book the loneliest americans And I was such a fangirl of it. I actually found out he lives in Berkeley and I reached out to him to say like, do you want to have a play date? I think he's also a young parent. Um, But Jay's, Jay's book is all about how Asians, the identifiers for us are so unclear. We live in this gray space, we're not a monolith, but yet we're lumped together, right? Even the term Asian American, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. so vague. But what do people really know about us? For East Asian women, it's things like we love Hello Kitty, we're really bad drivers, but we're really good at math. Um, In corporate America, maybe it's things like we're either passive and submissive like lotus flowers or we're these ball-busting dragon ladies. That's not culture. Those are stereotypes. So the book talks about how for a certain subset of Asians, primarily upwardly mobile Asians who have the privilege to even be having these conversations right now on a global scale, you can get to a certain level of whiteness without feeling particularly white. I resonate with that because even though I've achieved a certain level of success in my career and I'm proud about that, I also feel conflict Because I know that maybe part of how I got to that success was through 
isolating parts of myself that are crucial to my ABC identity, but thinking that my lived experiences wouldn't be embraced or understood or possibly even rejected, right? So by achieving that kind of social mobility, I think, did I have to shirk parts of myself? And then what's lost of me in the process? And I was wondering like, okay, in corporate America, what is the mobility of Asian American women, right? So here's a hard fact for us. In corporate America, even though Asian American women are the demographic group most likely to have graduate degrees, they are the least likely to be promoted from individual contributors into management. They're Mm -hmm. the least likely, less likely than any other race, including Blacks and Hispanics. To sit with that for a second to say, like, why is there that huge disparity? Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I, I grapple with and I think about, right? Just mm-hmm. really trying to understand how do Asians carve out more of a distinct path for themselves And the fact that there's not that many of us in leadership positions, so do I want to look at it as a form of tokenism or do I want to take it as this opportunity to open the door wider for others? Mm -hmm. Do you feel, Janine, like there was a distinct difference in your approach once you entered that level in your career where you started entering management? Like, I guess as an Asian woman, maybe versus your peers, did you feel greater resistance or did you change your approach in in trying to represent the voices creatively, but then also just in terms of your own career, like pushing, pushing for your persona? I feel like nowadays, uh, maybe because I'm more established in my career, I have the responsibility of, of leading a team. The team that I lead, they're really diverse thinkers, right? They like span all sorts of demographics. Uh, And that was concerted. And that was not only something that I thought was a good practice for companies, but also good for humankind, Mm -hmm. right? So the fact that they're so diverse and they're so open and vulnerable with being able to speak out loud, I want to be able to protect their psychological safety Mm -hmm. um, and encourage people to show up as their authentic selves, right? And that, again, starts with example. I need to feel more open and more comfortable with being vulnerable or offering a different perspective so that other people can also offer their own unique perspectives. So I think that was interesting for me is like, okay, I've gotten to a place in my career where this isn't just something that's nice for me to do. It's something that is essential for me to do, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm going to really call myself a leader and someone that can really champion other people and have them show up authentically at work. The other thing I'd say is that there is the whole conversation swirling around us about how people can feel valued and validated, making room for more voices. Like, you cannot ignore that that's the conversation happening in America. Mm-hmm. And um, as a brand, how do you stay relevant? How do you tap into the cultural zeitgeist that's happening and really not create a different conversation, but like lean into the conversation that's happening, right? Like push on that momentum, so I think that's also the important thing for for me to argue around is like, okay, DEI isn't just a good operating principle. It's important for the evolution of this company. And, and therefore, like that effect will be an evolution for humankind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something else that I feel was really, really important. And then I think the added layer, I just recently became a mom. And I think about that as well is like, You know, Old Navy, for instance, is all around creating a better future for future generations. I took that. I understood it. I don't think I ever could really understand it until I became responsible Mm -hmm. for like two little human beings that were part of that future generation, right? So now I have skin in the game to say, okay, like what does that really look like on a human level? Um, And that's really been like a huge driving force and impetus for really trying to to speak up around things that I think are important. Wow, that was a lot to digest and all very well articulated. Um, mm-hmm. I loved how you basically kind of united the idea of 
representing multiple voices um, in your work as a creative because you have the power of this like major brand, but then also understanding that it needs to happen authentically and that if you're in a position of leadership, the best way to do to create a safe environment for people is to to hire diversely and then also for you yourself to demonstrate that it's okay to be authentic and to be vulnerable. Jeannie, you're talking about being in a leadership role and how you want to encourage diverse voices. And something that you said really stood out to me then is that when we think about diversity, sometimes we just automatically think about race but diversity also mm-hmm. comes in thought so i think that's something we that you i think you pinpointed really well and being open to different like i guess opinions perspectives and thought that's also diversity too so i think what you're doing is really incredible there you had also shared with us in some of our side combos that you have a love for side hustles which we you know mm-hmm. not not too surprised about given your your history of being um, a hustler and and you know really really a hard worker, um, and in terms of the three of us, we we definitely started ABG as a side hustle as a passion project while we were working nine to five jobs, um, and many of our listeners uh, have written to us about their side mm-hmm. hustles that they're starting. So we'd love to hear for you to share. You know you've talked about kind of your career, um, but what are what are some standout side hustles you've had in your life? I've always like been an expensive person. I follow Namvo's advice of like things are expensive, but so are you. Like know your mm-hmm. self worth. <laughs> so I would say like in my twenties, out of necessity, I was like, okay, so what can I do to pad my wallet? Um, one side hustle I had was creating jewelry. I actually just like had my own um, necklaces that I loved and people started commenting on it. And so I just started like recreating and making that. Um, And I would kind of just use sort of the power of guerrilla marketing. If anyone was like, oh, I love your necklace. I'd say, great, like I love it too. And I can make it for you if you want, right? I think in a way, journalism has been a bit of a side hustle as well. I have used my background in journalism um, to tap further into my passion. So for instance, um, using it as a way to travel when I didn't have necessarily the funds to travel, right? The one of I, I talk a lot about my love for Marrakesh. One of the reasons I love Marrakesh is because of all the times I've gone there with friends, but also for work. I traveled to Marrakesh to cover the film festivals, um, to cover the opening of the YSL Museum. It was a way for me to... Um, be able to to get to places that I didn't necessarily have access to mm. um, and to understand like how things are connected literally to like you know be in a really deliciously extravagant hotel room for a night or two that wasn't on my dime you know and also like going to interesting places but also meeting really interesting people uh You know, I think that's actually what's been so interesting about my journalism career is I've stayed connected to a lot of the people that I've met. One of them is Brandon Jew, who runs Mr. Jews out in Chinatown in San Francisco. I met him through an article and, you know, I've been a huge supporter of what he's been doing for Chinatown. And that was kind of just through supplementing my nine to five Um, with some pieces that, you know, then would end up in various publications. So that's been some, you know, and for me also, I think the side hustle of like consistently having conversations, I actually almost feel like they don't need to have an output right away. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like one thing that I love to do is just continue to make connections and to keep the dialogue open, right? So um, early on in the pandemic, I was chatting with some really incredible people in the Asian American community space and we were thinking about creating this super provocative like multimedia editorial platform that was focused on AAPI culture. And um, we couldn't get it off the ground then, but that to me doesn't mean that I'm not going to ever be able to get it off the Mm -hmm. ground, right? I Mm -hmm. think it's like, always sort of for me keeping the door open and keeping the dialogue open so that when an opportunity arises to kind of like really do the execution that the whole plan's been laid out right Mm -hmm. like all of your pieces are there and then you just have to kind of hit the ground running so 
I would never like tell someone to not be disheartened if their side hustle doesn't look exactly the way that they wanted to right away. You're still building foundations. You're still connecting the dots so that opportunity hits right at the right time and that you're ready for it, right? Mm -hmm. But nowadays, like, it's so interesting. I feel like my side hustle is being a mom (laughs) and having twins and, like, throwing them a really fun, like, birthday party. Like, that's Mm -hmm. all I can do to to feel like, okay, I've got something else going on besides my career. Yeah, that's (laughs) That's a really great way to position the side hustle. I feel like the narrative that we usually hear in culture nowadays is it being about grinding and, you know, trying to make extra money and like needing to see a payoff right away. So I really love how you positioned it as a way to continue fostering your passions and to create connection and Mm -hmm. meaning in your life and that to really take the long Mm -hmm. view because I think that's for Mm -hmm. us as well we did it you know when we started our podcast it there was not um, immediate receptivity like it took a couple I think a year or two before Mm -hmm. there was like you know more tangible projects so um, Mm -hmm. for anyone listening Mm -hmm. yes rewind back and listen to all the things Janine just said (laughs) such encouraging words yeah yeah Yeah, I feel like, you know, just thinking about those two words together, like it should be fun, Mm -hmm. right? Like it should be something that you are, you're supplementing your brain with like a completely different solution, right? And you're like satisfying an itch that you might not be getting from your nine to five. Like take it as that. I actually think it's monetizing your hobby. And I, I love that, right? Yes monetize your hobby <laughs> Judy I, I'm just sitting here processing everything you just said because there's so many times I just want to jump in and say something but I wanted to take it in I'm gonna just fill my thoughts real quick because like you said just said just uh, such amazing things the past like five minutes when you're talking about the side hustle man I just feel like after you explained everything and shared your story like I think you're just so smart about it because it is about like Yes, you should enjoy and have fun with your side hustles. Like this isn't necessarily work right away, but I think you really like reflected about what are the things that I really enjoy. Hey, I like expensive things. Girl, same. <laughs> but it's about like, but how, but knowing, but knowing that, how can I also find ways to get, to be able to fund the things I like at the same time with travel. Like I think about that too. It's like, I do enjoy traveling, but the fact that you're able to like, create a side hustle or like hey I also like journalism and I also like traveling how do you create these opportunities for yourself and with and with some essence mm-hmm. that you're not hustling as hard to get because you're turning your mm-hmm. passion you're turning things that you're interested in into your side hustle or your work so I think that was incredible right there so oh just loved everything you said <laughs> oh I'm so happy yeah I feel like it's it's been really interesting because I have this like very practical Um, realist side of myself, right? Of like, what do I need Mm -hmm. to be doing to feel like I'm taken care of, like my family can be taken care of, that I have like the appropriate healthcare that I need. But at the same time, like Mm -hmm. I am driven by ideas and I'm driven by really interesting dialogue and innovation And how can I like create Mm -hmm. that mix for myself, right? It's like manifesting your dreams and visions um, and really like Mm -hmm. supplementing yourself so you don't feel like you're not without options. Like I think that's also a thing Mm -hmm. about side hustles is you can sort Mm -hmm. of like be Mm -hmm. fluid. I mean, this is a culture where it's like things are fluid and toggling back and forth between various sectors and various intersections of self and career like that is that is like today so um I really like that and encouraging that for for people who are thinking about making a change or adding something on or taking something off like all of that Mm -hmm. is okay just follow your instinct and follow what really makes you excited Now that I'm an auntie of many little ones, I find myself spending more and more time with kids. And I've had to get more creative with that time because you can only play so many rounds of hide and seek before either you or the kid gets bored. Something I've discovered and would highly recommend to other aunties and uncles out there are play kits, especially ones like Little Passports, which offers globally inspired award-winning kits designed for curious kids to fuel their inner explorer. 
Each month, Little Passports will send a kit packed with play-based activities, interactive crafts, puzzles, games, and stories to help kids have fun while they learn about the world around them. Whether building a solar-powered robot, creating a Spanish mosaic, or playing with animal friends in the Serengeti, kids ages 3 to 10 will love learning with Little Passports. For listeners of the show, Little Passports is offering new customers 20% off when you go to littlepassports.com abg. That's 20% off when you go to littlepassports.com abg. littlepassports.com abg. All right, Janine, you mentioned that you're also a mother and, you know, you balance a lot, you know, with your job, your side hustles and now motherhood. You're the mother of two-year-old twins, Rocco and Astra, a boy and a girl, Long Fong Tai for those who speak Mandarin. You know, when you're thinking about starting a family, you know, what types of things did you consider and how did you plan to balance family life with your work life? And once it happened, has reality met your expectations? Yeah, so it's really amazing that you're asking me this question. And I was, um, again, trying to reflect on this. I feel like my answers are good. They're never going to be great because I think I'm still trying to process, right? Um, I would say, you know, these twins are a manifestation. If, If you kind of get like one great wish in your life, granted, for me, it was the twins. I, I've wanted twins, a boy and a girl, since I can remember. I've even like done the research in terms of like, how do you get twins? Even like one of the one of the tips was like, eat this certain strain of African yams. Like mm. for me, I was like, okay, I I want them, and I thought I would get to this point where I'd. I'd be um, a little bit older and that they would happen through science, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for me, actually, it was just sort of getting older. I We had our wedding and I was so stressed out about the wedding that I ended up having these like irregular periods. Mm-hmm. So the twins happened because I hyperovulated. Wow. <laughs> um, I basically dropped two eggs. Like if you imagine like a, uh, like a, I guess like a gumball machine or something, it's like two gumballs are stuck mm. up above the slot and like they bang out and then like there drops two, right? So uh, that's what happened for me. Literally three months after the wedding, I'm sitting in the little reclining chair at the doctor's office and... I'm meeting her for the first time and she's doing the ultrasound for the first time. I have no idea what I'm looking at. It's like pixelation of black and white. And she says, I can see one heartbeat and now I can see two heartbeats. It's really incredible. Um, The expectations, I guess I'll start with that. They are incredible. I truly feel so overjoyed and blessed by their presence. I have um, loved being a mom. I think that's been a really natural sync up for me. Mm. I I would say that the things that have been hard, for instance, um, one thing that I've been much more aware of is what am I bringing to the table in terms of how am I showing up, right? How am I showing up as a as their mom who is Asian American, right? Mm-hmm. As a mom who understands different cultures their dad is white I'm coming in as a Chinese American there's a lot of nuance there and I I found myself like really like wanting to carve out true space for them to understand that they have different parts of themselves right like me coming in I'm speaking to them in Mandarin I'm really being thoughtful about the books that they're reading, mm. um, the, the things that they're seeing. You know, they just got into a Mandarin immersion school. Those are all super important to me to make sure that they don't neglect that side of themselves. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, this is sort of like all sort of reflective. And I feel like reflection is like all I can do when I talk about my twins. But they were born in the beginning of the pandemic. They were born that Easter weekend when we weren't sure if my husband was even going to be able to be in the operating room. And if you think about the past two years and how much has been packed in, good and bad, um, you know, there's been racial reckoning. There has been a lot of things happening within the Asian community. I just think that it's it's been sort of a we're going to take it one day at a time type of thing. And 
um, really kind of learning on the job. Yeah. And trying to like have the most honest conversations with my husband about like how are we going to show up as parents. Mm-hmm. So one piece of advice I'd say is I wish we started earlier we we we're, we've been doing couples therapy since the babies were born. I actually think it'd be great with your partner to start even before the babies are born so that you kind of really start to articulate like what would be your parenting style? Mm. Um, how much would you want to be doing versus me? Mm. Um, what are the values that you want to instill, right? Like kind of leaving room for that earlier because once it happens, you're jostling for time and space. Like, you know, you can't even, like, tell left from right once Mm -hmm. the babies are here. (laughs) So maybe, like, having the time beforehand would be, would have been good for us. Yeah, that that is a great tip considering you are such a um, person who's tuned into your culture and you know that that's a big part Mm -hmm. that you want to pass on to them. I think that is even more of a reason to, um, to do couples therapy where you just make the space to have those conversations, like you said, instead of just... Mm -hmm assuming and then or having them in this on the spot you know when you're when you're trying to make decisions with two young babies Mm -hmm. um you've also talked openly janine about how uh having children has affected your own personal identity and you recently wrote in an article for cnn when i gave birth to biracial twins almost one year ago something instinctual happened I sang to them in Chinese, I fed them kongji, I celebrated Lunar New Year by parading them around our neighborhood in red and gold garb. I thought if I can't learn to be proud of all the parts of me, how could they? This idea of finding your own voice as an Asian American um, even more, or like having that identity and that voice evolve after giving birth. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting because I almost feel lucky that Uh, As I've been learning as a young parent how to carve out more space for them, there's been these conversations and this sort of like educational learning curve, right? All of these writers that we might know about in our community are gaining traction. All of these conversations are happening on a much more mainstream platform. That's been really helpful for me to sort of validate that the fears that I've had about Owning my whole self, those are fears and questions that my community has also been addressing. I truly feel like, and and I've talked to my family about this, is the moment that they were born, I felt like I had this immediate duty to be more authentically myself. Mm -hmm. To, again, like lead through example of how do I feel comfortable with grappling these questions like I might never answer in my lifetime, but they're okay to question and they're important to voice and they're important to explore. And so for me, it's actually just been also like a journey of, you know, getting so far in my career without necessarily addressing who I am, right? Like what my upbringing was like. I'm thinking that I to get to where I was was to read the room and to sort of code switch and sort of even like Kathy Park Hong talks about this like it's even like ghosting yourself right Mm -hmm. it's like understanding what you can do to make other people comfortable rather than saying like how am I going to show up and feel good about myself and feel like I was like a true reflection of what I care about and think about, I think it's really with the twins, I want to just make sure that I'm, again, like leading by example and um, leaving a legacy that they are proud of, that they feel like their mom leaned into harder conversations Mm. and tried, right? Try to do the uncomfortable or the hard thing. But I'm really wanting to show... Um, that the true path for you is the one where you feel authentically yourself and you feel respectful um, of other people as well as your own opinions. Like, how do we do more of that for the next generation? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm honestly just learning. I'm like literally just learning and it's it's hard. So for me, I'm at home and I'm like trying to speak Mandarin to them, but it's also not necessarily natural. Mm-hmm. It's like... 
I have to be conscious of it. And I have to, I feel like I'm a little translator, right? Mm. Like they say something in English and then I say it in, in Chinese. And I'm like constantly translating. It's not the easy mm. path. Mm. I think it's a hard path, but I think it's worthwhile. And it's not just because like, you know, Chinese is a predominant language and it's good for future business relations, right? It's like there's proven studies that being able to be bilingual becomes important for you in terms of being empathetic Mm. to others, in terms of you being able to find more creative solutions, understanding that there's an A and a B. Mm. So really just it's an uphill battle, I'd say, to have to like think about those things. I just think it's very, very Mm. worthwhile. And it's reflective of what we're even saying, right? Like to be comfortable in a room, to have comfortable conversations, is that really evolution? Mm, mm-hmm. Or is it like the dialogue that's 10 layers mm. deep, right? Or you go zero to 100, you have more context. Like are those the things that are going to like move us as humans? Oof. I don't know why, but that lot, what you just said about being a mom and like, um, everything you're doing for your twins, it really got me really emotional. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I'm feeling things. Like, tell me why. Maybe it's my coffee. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh man. I just think that like, I think as we get older, you know, being like children of immigrants and just like being an adult, I think you think a lot about the legacy you leave for, you know, yourself or your family. I think for you now being a mom, having these like I guess, tangible human beings that you have ownership now of. It just makes that idea of carrying, like, I guess, leaving your legacy even more real because you feel that responsibility. And so I just visualized you, like, you know, dressing your kids up and, like, really showing them your culture. It's, like, the reality of what it means to create, like, to leave your legacy, to share your culture and that making sure that they feel they're, they identify with this identity. It just really... It just feels like maybe you're like, you're, you're like five steps ahead of me and I see it and I just get really emotional visualizing what you're going through. Yeah. Because I see the importance of it, you know? I want them to like feel pride that they can see more of different facets of culture, right? Mm. They don't necessarily need to love one over the other, but that they have um, more options and more of an understanding and more of the connection. Mm. I honestly, I don't know. You'll have to talk to me in a couple of years of how successful I was in creating that pride. <laughs> but even, you know, them, I get so overjoyed when they say something in Mandarin first, for instance. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I, like that was great, you know? Because mm. nine out of the 10 words are always first in English, right? Because we live in America and most of the people right. they deal with are American. But what we did with the HuffPost article, like it feels like there's an interconnectedness to people before you. Mm-hmm. And that feels like support. That feels like there is mm. like more meaning behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you're doing that. You shared your sense of responsibility as a mother and... I obviously we're talking with you and you're doing such amazing things at Old Navy. What are some tips you have for our, like our listeners who are, you know, starting their journey on motherhood? Like how do you balance both motherhood and work? Yeah. Again, it's such a good question and I don't have great answers for you. One of the agreements I had with my husband when I first went back to work full time was every quarter, right? So like every maybe um, eight weeks or so, one of us is going to go away and we're going to take a break for ourselves. Mm. So I plan everything from an overnight trip with a bestie to a couple of days away, um, even maybe by myself. The last one I did was New York last month with my cousin, who is one of my best friends. And we did a no-holds-bar mom trip, right? We really pampered ourselves and that to me is taking care of myself so when I come back, I feel whole. And I feel like I've also prioritized myself mm. in the long list of priorities that we all have. But to be completely honest, most days I feel like that head casually exploding emoji. 
I know it's particularly bad and I probably have to call in reinforcement when it's nine o'clock at night. I am on my third beauty face mask. I'm wearing some ridiculous dress that I'd never wear if the twins were still awake. I'm 26 tabs deep in internet shopping on random things that I probably will not purchase. And I have just postmated myself a mango bingsu because I need something sparkly to end my night. Maybe that's balance. <laughs> I just know that some days I'll be feeling great and I'll feel like everything is taken care of. And then other days it'll be a holy shit, I forgot to wear my bra situation. And that's okay. Great pieces of advice, great tips. Um, in terms of, I mean, just talking about kind of, I guess, general like life advice, you had also shared with us that you have um, what you call your personal board of directors. Um, and I thought this is such a smart way to approach um, managing your personal and, and professional life. So can you expand on, on this concept that you have? Yeah, well, I can't take credit for it. It was something that I heard in one of those like women workshops. The data point is that you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with, right? So for me, I have always tried to surround myself with people who are committed to personal growth um, with similar values that I do that offer um a bright, optimistic sense of what we can all be doing in this world. So um, I've always sort of stoked that and, and fostered that. And in recent years, I've just given them a really witty title of being on my personal board of directors. I think what's really amazing about having that is that you will always feel supported and you feel like whether or not you... Um, you talk to them on a daily basis or weekly basis or even monthly basis that there are people in your life that can hold up a mirror, but it can also push you forward. So for example, on my board of directors, and a lot of them will be surprised to hear that I even call them that, right? There is someone that I go to for financial advice, I'm pretty bad with finances. So for me, I'm like, I trust you. That's what you do. I trust that you have my back. So I'm going to come to you and ask you some questions. Um, there's also someone I go to for mom advice or relationship advice or someone that I go to for tough love, right? Mm -hmm. That like just tells me to like suck it up and do the hard thing. I know that I can go to them for that like really focused inspiration. So not only does it make you feel more well-rounded, but um, you know, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz. Like Dorothy had so many different people in her life that provided um, different feelings of nourishment. And I, I feel like that's what I've done with my own community is they are coming in from all different types of areas, right? Not even just ethnic backgrounds, but different backgrounds in general makes me see things that I might not have seen. Mm. Wow. I love that. I also love that you called them the personal board of directors. I might use that yeah. nowadays. <laughs> it's like a fancy title. <laughs> Jeannie, I feel like you just shared so many like great insights and such great gems in today's episode, but I have to ask you to wrap today's episode. What's one piece of advice you've been given that you always go back to? I would say that it is taking care of yourself before you take care of others. It really is put your own emergency mask on before you put it on, you know, your favorite children. Um, it is so important so that you feel like you're coming into conversations, you're coming into rooms full, and uh, that you're able to offer something, right? Versus the idea of, of being depleted and, and, and offering um, a 12% battery, like come in at 100%. Mm. I think that just like keeps a really great mental stability and keeps things moving in a, in a really healthy way. 
Very, very good piece of advice. That's actually one of my mom's top pieces of advice as well. Um, so thank you for sharing. Thank you again, Janine, for being on our podcast and sharing so much um, about your life, um, about your identity, about motherhood, about all of your wonderful tips in pursuing creative work and in balancing a career. Um, and for all of our listeners, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support, or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonate with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. If you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called GRBG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is asianbossgirl. And here are shout-outs for today's episode. From Quincy, Massachusetts, Janice is sending a shout-out to her little sister Lucy on her 27th birthday. I always feel grateful to have you in my life. Even though we didn't grow up together, we clicked right away when we reunited in the USA. Thanks to our parents for raising such sweet, kind, smart, lovely sisters. Love you always, and I will be here for you. From Hong Kong, Natalie is sending a shout-out to Karina. Looking forward to your dreamy wedding in December. You've got this beautiful bride-to-be. Good luck with all of your preparations love you from toronto annie and lily are sending a shout out to michelle who is a true abg you inspire us and we wish you a smooth move to new york city and we have a couple more shout outs for weddings seems like it's wedding season in seattle asawari is sending a shout out to felicia i cannot wait to celebrate your wedding with you this month i'm glad you found someone who makes you so happy wishing you the best always and in philly becky is sending a shout out to our very own abg dr jen t congratulations on your upcoming wedding so happy for for you and your K-drama male lead in real life. If you'd like to send a few words of encouragement or a shout out or congratulations to a friend or loved one, check out the link in the show description or our link tree in our link in bio on Instagram and click on shout outs. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. And we will catch you all on the next one. Bye! Bye.